your company. I'm Deanna. For more in the Hide of Heart series, you can find us online for articles and other cool content for you to enjoy. This week, we're getting real about the wait because desert seasons or times that feel wasted, not for lack of our own efforts a lot of the time, but rather nothing just seems to be happening. Well, this can be pretty frustrating. And try as we might, sometimes hard graft just isn't enough. So how to deal with those desert or dry seasons when things feel dry and we don't feel heard. I'm speaking with author Alison Allen, who offers fresh perspective on this topic in her new book, Thirsty for More. Together, we're exploring the wonders of rest and rebuilding strength during these seasons that might otherwise feel like lost time. Yeah, I just I just know that so many of us as believers walk through um, just very dry and difficult, quiet seasons at times. And I've, I've named those desert seasons. And, uh, you know, that's a, a phrase that's been used uh, for a long time in, in Christendom. And so I, I wrote the book out of my own desert experience and with the hope of kind of reframing it, Deanna, I, I think... For the longest time, especially when I discovered in my own story that I was, yes, indeed, in a desert season, I, I kind of kicked against the goads, and all I wanted was for the season to end, which I think is, you know, very human. Um, but then I started to get this inkling that Jesus was doing something different in my desert season than maybe I had expected, and that there was deeper work going on beneath the surface of it. And so, in the book, I hope to give women uh, and men, anyone walking through a desert season, the encouragement that God is actually doing something unique in the desert season that's forming us, um, perhaps for our destiny in ways that, that very little else could. How did this book come about for you? What's been your personal journey with this issue? Well, uh, it, it started out with a, a bit of great news. My desert began with, uh, again, uh, the heralding of good news in my own life. I, uh, my husband and I had struggled with secondary infertility for about seven years. We had no problem getting pregnant with our first child, but uh, for seven years after that, we just, you know, we just could never uh, conceive again. And so I, um, I had kind of resigned myself and waved the flag of surrender over that. Um, I always joke, just give away your baby furniture and get a dog if you want to get pregnant, because that's exactly what happened for us. Um, <laughs> I remember we we stood in the garage and we were like, Lord, look, if, if an only child is what you've ordained for us, if that's your will, we're, we're great with that. You're not limited by quantity. And so we gave away all our baby furniture, got the dog, and... Um, at that moment, I was already eight weeks pregnant and had no idea. Wow. Uh, it was really, yeah, at 40, 40. So it was um, really against the odds, no outside help. And, uh, you know, we just, we considered it to be, and still consider it to this day, to be one of those moments where God intervened. Um, and, uh, you know, we went on through the pregnancy, everything seemed fine. And then at 20 weeks, I had an ultrasound and I saw this look of con concern kind of pass across the um, face and um, to kind of drill the story down um, to a common denominator, basically the, the structure, my pregnancy structure wasn't holding. Internally, I had what's called an incompetent cervix. At 20 weeks, that was a real problem. Um, I think I had, I think the number was 0.7 centimeters left. And at that point, it's supposed to be, I don't know, four or five times that so we rushed over to emergency surgery. Um, they did the surgery. It was our only choice to to save Luke. And uh, and you know I 
I embarked on bed rest, as as you might imagine. And so, for a Type A person like myself, sitting on the couch day after day, you know, able to get up and get a glass of water and go to the restroom, I'm happy to report, you know. But but other than that, there was there was nothing I could do. And and I started to realize probably about halfway through that experience, man, I'm I'm in a desert season with Jesus. It's it's disorienting to me. Uh, it, it's lonely. It feels isolated. And for me, the tangible, the tangible presence of God seemed distant. You know, and I always make the point in the book, God never leaves us. Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. That's clear. But I think there are those unique times where the veil feels thicker between ourselves and God's heart. And it was one of those times. And then as I re- surrendered to it, I began to sense, God, you're actually you're actually bringing me some blessings and some spiritual, spiritually unexpected gifts in this dry place if I would just um, release myself fully into the experience. And uh, I always have to give this little addendum because people want to know. We, we did make it through Luke was born. Uh, I call him Luke the Red. And he came, uh, he came at 39 weeks. And so we made it through that season. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, that was a, a metaphor for the whole three-month desert journey for myself as well. So, I mean, that's huge. Bed rest, being pregnant is very isolating. Your body is not your own as well. You don't really feel (laughs) yourself, probably don't feel comfortable. What got you through that specific season in your life? Because you were very much unable to go out and about as well. So it's not even like um, you could, even if you were feeling like you were in a really um, desert place or there wasn't much happening in your world or you weren't hearing from God or whatever it was, you couldn't actually go to a church community either. You couldn't really physically make the change that perhaps you would have liked to have made to get yourself around other people and to be encouraged. So um, how did you get through it? Yeah, number one, I think it was the sheer mercy of God because, as I stated earlier, I really am type A. And so to not be able to do and to be active was 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 really difficult for me. And, you know, even though the body of Christ stepped up incredibly, and they really did, we didn't want for anything. We had all the, you know, casserole dishes you could shake a stick (laughs) at. And, you know, people helped cart our older son around. And there were visits, but you're so right. It still left, you know, what, a good 70 to 80% of the time, just you, yourself, and yourself. You know, and I always joke, it was me, myself, and I, and the triune God on a Haverty's leather couch. And, you know, I think the thing that helped me was returning to the scripture and beginning to dig into some of the desert experiences that are laced throughout the scripture and starting to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord, if I can if I can switch out these glasses through which I'm seeing the whole experience and allow you to deliver to me a different perspective, I might I might see something differently. And I'll I'll give you an example. So just the very physicality, as you mentioned, of being on bed rest, um, that phrase itself became a a breadcrumb along the trail to what Jesus was was doing in my life. You know, um, Deanna, I I don't rest well. Like I've walked with Jesus now for, you know, over 30 years, but resting is one of those spiritual disciplines or spiritual invitations that I just eschew. I just, I don't get it. I feel like I don't need it. I don't do it very well. And so one of the things God began to press, impress upon my heart on the couch was, Allison, there's some deep restoration emotionally, spiritually that needs to take place in your life, but you have refused to stop. You have 
refused to sit down when I'm inviting you to sit down. And so I'm going to teach you in this three-month bed rest that you can actually rest your way into restoration. You can actually trust me to bring you restoration if you would just rest. And what I began to see, Deanna, was that my lack of rest in my life, and I mean, you know, theater person, speaker, writer, like I was always doing something. And I got a real sense of worth from activity and executing tasks. But I began to see that my lack of rest in Christ was directly related to a lack of trust in Him. And I had never seen that correlation until my desert season. And and here's how I explain that. I really, truly believed that if something was going to get done of benefit, I had to do it. That's just how I had lived my life. And so when I leaned back into rest on that couch, I really discovered a deeper trust in Christ that uh, that was new to me. Even at that point, it would have been 25 years into my journey with Him, that I could trust Him enough to rest, that He would attend to the things that concerned me. And actually, some of the the healing that I really desperately needed in my life, um, he he would he would take care of if I could trust him enough to rest. And so that's I go into more detail in the book, but there are ten of those elements like rest, perspective that God gave me in the desert season that I really don't think I really don't think I would have gotten anywhere else. I think this is such such an incredibly important conversation, probably for any generation, but particularly now where everything is go, go, go. Um, yes. And we've kind of accepted the lie some time ago about multitasking when actually it's turned out it's it's not that great for not us. Not possible. <laughs> no. And we're on social media all the time. And, and do you know, I, I, I mean, I've had a similar story where I was a doer and still very much am, but it wasn't until I physically couldn't. I was in a situation where I physically had to stop and I'm all of a sudden looking at my life going, um, hang on, am I achievement driven? What? Why does my confidence and my self-worth come so much from what I am so able to do? Um, yes. They don't really teach us. I mean, I don't know. I was never really taught rest and I'm, you know, I grew up in church and I, I just want to kind of get into why do you think that we are so drawn, so many of us, not all of us, but we can be so drawn to doing in our culture? And what do we miss when we can't rest and let God do the rest, as it were? Oh, fabulous, fabulous questions. Um, I can only address it that those questions from the perspective that the Lord kind of revealed to me when I was was on on you know in that bed rest season. Um, in the book, I kind of talk about little T truths and capital T truths, and I, I, Deanna, I had these, I had these little T truths in my life. Um, they they would have sounded good to you. They would have sounded spiritual to you. I probably could have made a case for them. Uh, somewhat scripturally, if I pulled a few things out of context, you know what I'm saying? But then when I went into the desert experience, God, I don't, it was just the intense weather conditions of that desert experience that revealed those little T-truths. And I began to see that all these little T-truths that I carried around had nothing to do with God's capital T-truth. And I I, kind of define that as things that just line up with his nature, his character, the scripture and his ways. And one of those goes to the to the heart of your question. One of my little tea truths that I carried into the desert was that 
I had to perform for God's favor. I had this, and I'm talking about, I, I, I sat under some of the most incredible, gifted teachers, uh, you know, in the States. I mean, Tim Keller being one of them when I was in New York. So it wasn't that I was getting faulty teaching. It was that somewhere in my brokenness, I had received the lie and then constructed an additional lie that, hey, if I wanted God to really move for me, really open doors and, and be obvious in my life that I had to perform for it. Now, I think some of that likely comes from the fact that I'm a I was a performer. I was an actor, and so you know, it's not it's not a far hop, skip, and a jump from performing as a as a career to performing for God. But when I went into the desert experience, it's exactly what you said. I could do nothing. There was nothing I could perform. There was nothing I could do. You know, in quotations, for God during that desert season, but kind of be there. And and I began to to get the sense, the impression that God was speaking to my heart. You know, when I say speaking to me, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but just that deep impression that he was saying, my favor and my activity in your life, Allison, those things are not for sale. And they're not for sale by your perfect performance. And if you would just begin to come around to that understanding that that everything you need was completed on that cross, and in, and in me, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then life becomes, or life became for me, so much freer. And it wasn't about the constant doing. So I think for a lot of people, perhaps like me, maybe we've got this slightly faulty thing in our hearts that says, you know, if I really get it right, if I really work hard, if I pray this long, if I do all the things I see that I'm supposed to do, maybe God will favor me and, and bless me. And God just began to show me, look, girl, sweetheart, my favor is not for sale, not even by your quote unquote um, uh, perfect performance, if there even is such a thing. And so for me, that would be the answer to the question is that it really went to the, <laughs> my, my activity, Deanna really went to the sense, my sense of self-worth and my, and my core relationship to Christ. Sounds like a life-changing event that I'm sure now you can look back on. And, <laughs> and is it, would it be appropriate to say, I'm glad I went through it because I'm better for yeah. it? Yes. I mean, there's a scripture that says, I'm going to butcher the paraphrase, but it's out of the Song of Songs. And it says, who is this coming up out of the desert, leaning on her beloved? I mean, isn't that beautiful? And I, I kind of want to, I get teary when I say it because that's what the whole experience felt like me when I finally came up out of it when it was when it was done I felt like I had never been more intimate with Jesus and I really felt like I was that that person coming up out of the desert leaning you know on her beloved I I never I always say of the desert I would never wish it on someone but I would never take it from someone either you know and as I as I get the opportunity to speak um, whenever the Lord opens the door and I'll ask the question you know once we've kind of laughed a bit and gotten beyond the veneer I'll, I'll, I'll often ask the question how many of you right now in these beautiful idyllic conference surroundings would say that you're walking through some sort of desert? And it was astonishing for me as I began to ask the question because generally it was about half of the room 
And so I thought, oh, wow, Lord, this this desert experience as a believer, you know, some people would call it the dark night of the soul, but this desert experience as a believer is ubiquitous. It cuts it cuts across all generations, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic backgrounds and denominations. And so when I saw the commonality of the desert experience, I started to go, okay, let me go back to scripture and see what you say about this desert experience that might turn it on its head. And for me, one of the biggest ways that the whole experience was turned on its head was in Luke, in the gospel of Luke. And I... I think it's Luke 2, but basically after Jesus is publicly baptized, there's the audible voice of God, you know, blessing him. This is my son. Then Luke gives a little bit of genealogy. And then the very next action point at the top of the chapter is then Jesus being full of the spirit was led by the spirit into the desert. You know, and how many times have have we heard that taught or preached the desert battle between you know Jesus and the enemy of our souls and the use or misuse of scripture and humility and pride and all that, the battle that's going on in that desert? I've heard so many sermons and I've read and I've studied it. But for some reason, it was like God had me pull out a bit and see the order of things. So there's this absolute public announcement basically by his heavenly father that like he's the one. And then the very next thing is by, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the desert. And so I began to see that in many ways, the desert experience precedes destiny for many of us. You know, we a lot of times I'll talk to women and, and the first question is, what have I done wrong? How have I displeased God that I'm in such a dry, difficult place? And I just, yes, we can we can send ourselves into a dry place because we're in active, you know, unrepentant rebellion or sin. Absolutely. That's in the scripture as well. But when I look at Jesus, I go, wait a minute, maybe you're not in the desert because there's some hidden sin. Maybe you're in the desert because God is preparing you in that hard place, you know, for destiny on the back end of it. And, um, so I think that's, that's something that's been really astonishing for me to see. And then when he's finished with the desert experience, um, there's a phrase that just leapt off the page. It says he's empowered by the Spirit. So full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, goes into the desert and comes up out of it, empowered by the Spirit. And then he walks into the synagogue, he picks up the scroll, he reads out of Isaiah and basically says, I'm he. And I think you're he who came by the way of the desert. And so if it was needful for you in some way, Jesus is probably going to be needful for us and beneficial as well. Yes. And you also mentioned there the end of your desert season. Your desert season will come to an end. Sometimes it's very hard to be absolutely of that. Absolutely. It is going to happen. Yeah, I think we have to have hope. You know, we have to have hope yeah. and we have to have, you know, I, w- I will make rivers spring up in the desert, the scripture says. I'll make highways in the wasteland. I'll make rivers spring up in the desert. And that's what God was saying to me, Allison, I'm doing something of such benefit. You're going to take the gifts of the desert into the onto the mountain peaks and onto every different season of your life. The blessings of the desert will travel with you like seeds that you can plant in other seasons. And so that's the heart of the book is to give hope and to and to go, hey, sister, brother, hold on. Don't kick against the experience, but ask Jesus, what deeper thing are you actually, you know, doing in my life? Like, along with the rest um, blessing that he brought me, I, I also, as you might imagine, didn't love quiet. That was also very, 
like foreign to me. I was, I love music. I love sound. And God began to speak to me and say, look, you're going to learn to hear my voice in the midst of solitude. And you're going to hear it far more often than you hear it in the midst of the multitude. And so, I mean, Deanna, that changed my life. Like now I'm, now I'm actively trying, though it's difficult, to carve out moments of solitude now that I'm out of the desert because I remember, yeah, that's right. You know, when you spoke to Moses, you spoke on the backside or the far side of the desert, the scripture says, like not just, you know, hanging out with everybody in the sheep. He was on the deep side of the desert and that's where he saw the unconsumed bush and then ultimately the voice of God. And so those are some of the lessons that I'm now, while I'm not in the desert season, I look back on and go, Lord, please, please never let me forget that lesson because it has changed my life uh, in incredible ways. Yeah. You're reminding me so much of my own story. It's so encouraging. Mm -hmm. It really is. Before I move on to my next question, um, you mentioned there about little truths and big truths. Can you give us an example or a couple of examples of what they might look like or what they meant, what they looked like for you? Yeah, I think the the most primary one was the one where I equated uh, my performance with his favor. Um, I think another thing that I carried into the desert um, that is for sure a little T truth, um, is, and it was an emotional truth. It was not. I wouldn't have even called it a, a scriptural or a spiritual truth at that time. But I, I, I carried. I don't know how to say this exactly correctly, but I, I carried some deep unforgiveness that, um, that I think I had justified. Um, and I also carried some deep, 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 uh, disappointment with God. And that's, that's hard to say, but you know, the Lord knows our hearts. And I think of the prophet Elijah who runs into the desert after defeating Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And he basically on a day's journey into the desert, he sits down under that broom tree and he says, I, I want to die. Like, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And what I love about that encounter, Deanna, is God does not rebuke him. God actually sends an angel to minister to his body and says, sleep and eat. And then Elijah wakes up and sleep and eat again. And I think that's an important story because I think so often we're so afraid of the things that we really carry in our heart even perhaps toward the Lord, and and they're actually poisoning our well. You know, He knows them, and He loves us. He knows our frame. And even the prophet Elijah who's saying, hey, kill me, take my life. I don't want to live. I don't want to do this anymore. He doesn't rebuke the prophet. He actually sends an angel to minister to him. And the disappointment, I think, that I had carried into my desert season that God really wanted to deal with was my mom had passed away away from pancreatic cancer in 2005. And if you know anything about pancreatic cancer, it was, it's a super quick, um, it's a super quick illness and it's, it's almost always deadly by the time they catch it. And so from the time she was diagnosed till the time she passed away was only three months. And my first child was 18 months when that happened. So there was just, oh, Deanna, just like untold grief, um, untold grief over losing my mom at, in my early 30s, but also uh, the fact that she wouldn't get to see Levi growing up. And when I was in the desert, pregnant, understanding that she would not know Luke. And so God really asked me, and it was through journaling, but he really asked me to deal with that and to sit with that. And I was able to say, you know, Lord, 
my little tea truth is, look, I claim the scripture. I did every prayer walk I could. I fasted. Every single person I could get to pray, I had pray. And your answer in your sovereignty was no. And I had never just sat down with that and looked at that and and understood that God is still good even when he says no. Um, because I'd kind of gotten the message that if I did the right things and, you know, I do A, B, C, D and he does E, F, G, H, you know, it's a tit for tat thing. We've got an equation, you and me. And that story of Elijah, where it's not that, you know, because he goes to the mountain after the whole broom tree thing and God says to him, what are we, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah pours out this monologue and says, look, I've stood for you, God, and they're coming for me. They want to kill me. And I feel like there is a, an exchange that happens there in the cave in, in, on Horeb, Mount Horeb, where, where God begins to communicate to Elijah, you know, I am, I'm not a man and my ways are not your ways. And I had to come to my own cave, desert cave, cave experience over the death of my mom. And it gave me peace and it gave me hope. And it allowed me to say, you know, the Lord, the Lord is good even when he says no. So those are just a couple examples of uh, some little T-truths that I had to actually exchange for those capital T-truths that God had for me. You say little T-truths, but certainly not little challenges. You've certainly been through a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. they're not, that's, that, you know, I, I, I searched for a way to kind of talk about it. Yeah. And yeah, they weren't little to me. They were those Man, they were those chapters in a life that you've got to take the divine author back to, you know, the author and finisher of Hebrews and say, can, can we, or really he takes us back to, would be better stated. He took me back to and, and was saying, Allison, can we look at these? Because these things are handicapping you in ways you don't even understand mm. in your daily life. Yeah. And I actually want to help heal them. You know, I love that about Jesus. He's when Our salvation isn't just hey, we're delivered from here to heaven one day. Like he's actively working for the healing of our souls. And um, so that that was, a, I don't know, it just encouraged me deeply. But yeah, you're right. They weren't little emotionally in any no, sense of the word. No, and, <laughs> and when you're a doer, I find as well, when you're someone who is achievement driven for whatever reason, or you're active a lot, um, you mentioned as well, you don't even like quiet. So you're probably always surrounded by something. Um, it can be hard to even admit to yourself sometimes that that you're disappointed or emotionally that was really hard because you keep pushing through and you keep, no, if I keep going, if I keep working, if I keep doing, I'll get through the other side. At least I found. And oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you've, yeah, rest has helped you heal, which it sounds painful, but positive once the t season is behind you. <laughs> yeah. It's like surgery, you know, like I, yes. I had a, you know, it's so, such a simple analogy, but I had a, a disc that had blown out from years of doing theater. I did Greece in New York. And, uh, you know, if you know anything about Greece, there's a dance called the hand jive. And uh -huh. so there were, you know, a lot of sharp neck movements and we're not sure that's where, where it happened, but it's probably where it started. And, you know, they had to take the disc and I was in, oh my gosh, Deanna, for seven years, I'd fought the surgery. And finally it came to a place where I was living on you know, pain medicines and couldn't sleep and was, would walk my house and would weep you know, because it was on a nerve and my right arm was like 
you know, I, it, I, I lost the nerve sensation in the fingers. Wow. And it got to the place where the neuro was like, we, we have to do the surgery. You're going to lose the use of your right arm. And, um, you know, scary in the neck, the whole shebang. They couldn't save the disc. They had to put, um, you know, uh, they call it, well, it's a, I don't know, it's not a cadaver disc, but it's a, a false disc in there. Girl, I woke up from that surgery out of pain. Um, had the use of my arm back. And so I think the desert is like that experience. Like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. You know, Lord, please don't lead me there. I don't want to be full of the spirit, led by the spirit into the desert. I don't want to do battle there. I don't, I don't want to go through what the experience is. But my goodness, the minute I woke up from the anesthesia, it was like, I've got a whole fresh outlook on life. Um, so I think the desert experience for many people is kind of like surgery. And it's a surgery that isn't like, optional. You know, it's not a surgery that, well, I think I'll opt in for that. It's a surgery where I think the Lord says, look, these things can't go with you into your next season. And so let's, let's take care of them in this season. I love how you describe that. Yes. You just can't take it with you. So you need to stop and rest. Even if it's for a few years, let's sort it out. Let's pull the thorns out of your side and then you can run with purpose into the next thing. Yeah. I had a friend who used to say, um, you know, we always think of the word retreat as, as a, as a negative, you know, but I, but I started thinking, well, we go on retreat as women, you know, sometimes we'll go on a retreat, a church retreat. And my friend made the point, look, when you've been in a long, hard, horrible battle, not only is it good to retreat, it's wise to retreat, you know, and reset yourself and, and pull those arrows out of your shield and hydrate and rest because we know the battle doesn't end. We know the journey doesn't end until we see Jesus face to face. And so I think if many of us could could understand that this is for our good and mm. not because we're in some form of spiritual timeout, um, we could embrace the season a little bit more. Can I ask you, how did you come to faith? Yeah, I, I love telling this story. Someone asked me this recently. Um, I have to blame the theater and... Um, <laughs> here's here's the story, which the is very <laughs> interesting, right? I have to blame the theater. Okay, so I was a child of the 70s, and uh, during the 70s, there was a pop rock musical that swept the culture called Godspell, and uh, a lot of people are familiar with it. It's actually the book of Matthew um, set to music. It was written by Stephen Schwartz and John Michael Tebelek, but anyway, it swept the culture. I had the album. My dad would play the hit song that was, I think, the first contemporary Christian hit to be on the charts, actually. It was called Day by Day. And so I just was impassioned about this Jesus we were singing about. And we were folks that went to church here and there, but I I wouldn't say that uh, faith was woven into the tapestry of our family life. And so I didn't hear much about Jesus, and I I didn't really know him. Well, in my... um, very creative uh, five and six-year-old and seven-year-old mind, I, I began to believe that Jesus lived at the farmhouse next door to us in Katy, Texas. And then the movie Godspell was, was, it was so popular, it swept the culture so much that they made a movie out of it, and I saw it on TV. And I used to be very um, kind of angry that Jesus wouldn't walk across the little half acre and come visit me. So there was, I only <laughs> shared that story, that crazy. It's like, what? Oh, the drama queen from the word jump. But you know what? I think that there's something beautiful about it because it was really sovereign. It wasn't like somebody like came and presented the five point, like here's the five points and here's the propitiation of Christ. This is no, like, like I was just, 
I was just enthralled with this Jesus guy, you know? And so, and then I, I, you know, I would say that through the next decade or so, I I got involved in a good church um, and, and there were youth leaders particularly that scattered seeds on my life. But I don't think my faith life really broke open into bloom until I was again, the theater at Carnegie Mellon University in their acting conservatory. And we were about to go, go on for this crazy Greek, I think it was Lysistrata or something, or Antigone or something. And these students, a few students came to me and said, hey, Allison, do you want to you come pray with us? Now, that, that sounds really innocuous, but it's actually pretty astonishing at a really competitive theater conservatory. Um, and so I walked down the hall, and we began to pray, or they began to pray, and there was such an intimacy. Like, they they knew this Jesus that they were talking to. And I was like, and wait a minute, you're in the theater and you love Christ. And so it was there that after kind of a long prodigal season that I feel like my faith broke into bloom. And then I was able to get into some incredible churches. And um, so I, I, I think Jesus used the theater to reach my heart. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for Godspell. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only one. Grateful right. for Godspell. It's a. I mean, I'm obviously familiar, but it is before my time. So I do love that. There's always something. Um, there's always something in a generation that you know reaches people with the gospel, it, and it's always. It can often be. Um, Surprising, but the arts very powerful. Whether it's on stage or in film, or I'm grateful for it. Do you still do any um, any acting or creative work in that area? You know, I did. Um so after after New York, I did uh, the the show on Broadway for a couple years, and then just kind of felt um, at the end of those two years like the grace had lifted, and so I needed to move on. I don't know if you've ever been in a season like that, Deanna, where you have the ability to do what God's called you to do, and then that sense of hey, that empowerment is is not there in the same way that it used to be, and so I, I learned that lesson and and moved on and. Married my husband. He's a worship pastor. And so we've been in, you know, I, I, I joke that I also wear the pastor's wife hat in some regard, at least. And um, did some regional theater, did some Shakespeare. Uh, and then then I w- uh, was asked to do one woman dramas for women of faith. There was a women of faith conference in, in America. And actually, I think they were in Canada and some other places as well and did one woman drama for them. And then I write a bunch and uh, have had a movie uh, that I've co-written that that was produced called The Griddle House, and the gospel is all through it, although it's kind of um, under the subterfuge there. Um, so I think I've continued to be, um, I think, I think artsy people are creative at the DNA late level, and so I think, I think as long as I live, I'll I'll hopefully be be creating in some way, and then of course I speak a, a, a good bit, and I think um, I think where I see the theater uh, leaping to the forefront the most would be the storytelling element of what I do, and. Um, I, I love that because I just think Jesus was the ultimate storyteller and that's how he caught the hearts of people were those parables. So yeah, I don't I don't do it in the same way. I'm not traditionally on the stage, but I think spiritually and creatively, 
the stage has never left me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Totally. Um, getting back to Thirsty for More, we haven't got too much time left, but I'm really intrigued about how you write about believers that during the first three centuries of the church, um, you say that many men and women, they purposefully moved into deserts to actually actively seek God. So does this mean that we shouldn't be fearful of places which seem sparse or unknown, but rather we should embrace it? For what purpose? Yeah, you're spot on. I think we embrace it because whatever season Jesus is inviting us to, that's the safest place to be. And, you know, I I had heard a little bit about, they're called the desert mothers and fathers. Isn't that so beautiful? And I, I had heard... Through my, you know, I, I come up in a in a kind of a mainstream evangelical kind of background, and and I'd I'd hear whispers occasionally of the Desert Fathers, but it would be in the sense of like church history or something. I knew very very little of them, and I was writing another um, fictional uh, piece that I was working on, kind of a, 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 a fictionalization of a musical that I had written, and I discovered them, and I was like. What in the world? And basically, what happened was as as Christianity became the religion of the realm, and so it became state-sanctioned, would be the easiest way for, I guess, you and I to think about it. There were these like radical believers who felt like um, following Jesus had become too easy. And the way I put it in the book was that the cross had lost its cost. And so they they started moving out into the desert areas, and there were all kinds of different areas like around Egypt and different places that they would they would go. And they would go out into the wilderness, exactly as you say, to seek God in these intense ways. Now, they wrote a bunch. Um, there are a lot of desert mothers' sayings and desert fathers' sayings, and some of them are really inscrutable and, and kind of difficult to understand. Some of them are just absolutely beautiful. But the point I was making in the book is exactly what you said. They didn't not only run from the desert, they ran to the desert because they understood that there was something of unique benefit that God was going to do. And one of the ways that I utilize them in the book is at the end of each chapter, I, uh, I'll, I'll take a quote you know, from one of the desert mothers or fathers and try to apply that to, the own, to your own uh, desert experience. And um, I'm trying to see if I can find one um, on rest or perspective, just to give you a little taste Um, Yeah, like here's one. So this is about perspective, divine perspective. And this is Evagrius, one of the Desert Fathers. And he says, sit in your cell. And that was just their cave. That's what they called their cave, not a jail cell. (laughs) Collecting your thoughts. Remember the day of your death, but keep the day of resurrection and the presentation to God in remembrance also. And so this was that chapter where I was dealing with my mother's death and how the Lord had said no to a miracle on this side of the veil. And he said, I'm going to heal her, but it's going to be on the other side of the veil. And so having having that little quote, okay, yes, we're not, we are finite on this side of the veil, but God is doing something and he'll bring us to that day of resurrection through the, the gift of Christ. So it was it was a way for me to look at the people who had gone before into the physical desert and go, hey, if God gave them grace to make it through the physical desert, then I know he can give me grace to make it through the spiritual, emotional desert as well. 
Yeah. Okay. So if I'm in a dry season or I'm feeling very discouraged, I don't feel like much is happening in my life, that I'm not reaching my potential, my progress is slow, all that kind of stuff. Maybe I just don't feel heard at, at this moment. What should I be mindful of? What would be your top tips for as we go through a season like this? Yeah, I think you have to keep the scripture close. You know, I'm a I'm a girl that because I'm married to a worship pastor, like I love some musical worship, you know, and I love the the sense of um, closeness and um, emotion that I get sometimes through worship. And so sometimes in the desert season, those more emotional forms um, dry up. And so what I was able to do, um, and I've loved the scripture, lived in the scripture for years, but for some reason it came more to life to me in the desert season. And, you know, I think of Isaiah 35 that says the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It, meaning the desert, will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And when I could see that, you know, I believe God's word when he says it's living and active. It's powerful. And so the the, the best tip that I could say would be to stay close to God through the scripture. I also think it's important to journal, you could call it anything, but kind of a journal of remembrance. You know, when David went through his own desert season, which he does in some of the Psalms, some of the Psalms were actually written, it says, in the desert of Judah or in the wilderness of Judah. In one of those Psalms, he talks about remembering remembering the faithfulness of God. And so when I was in the desert season, I had to remember all the places throughout my history that God had been so faithful to bring me through the highest water and the driest seasons of my life. And that helped me. And then of course, this is on the outside of the desert season. If you're noticing a sister or brother that's going through just a dry place, they just feel distant from the Lord. It's desolate. We really need to hold them closely in prayer because I think the desert season is uh, can be one of the more difficult types of um, spiritual chapters that we walk through. And then I also think if we see someone in a desert season, you know, we're such a text culture, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email. I think there's something really powerful in writing a handwritten note of encouragement that that someone could keep right beside them. So those are simple but sometimes in the desert, it's the simplest things, kind of like food, water, and shade <laughs> that you need. So I would say the scripture, I would say a journal of remembrance, and then if you're on the outside, prayer for that person, and also tangible encouragement wherever you're able to deliver that. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, you're so welcome. What do you know now that with all the things you've experienced with, with regards to grief, with regards to... Um, career and career change, journey of faith, burnout of sorts where you've had to really spend time on your own in isolation and also pursue God in rest. What would you say that you didn't know 10 years ago, but you know now that you would suggest or pass on to younger men and women um, and ask them to be mindful of? Yes, I, I think the first thing that leaps to mind is that our God is faithful and no matter how difficult or dark or forgotten you feel, we are in relationship with the God who sees. You know, El Roi, the God who saw Hagar on that desert road, you're not forgotten, you're not invisible, you're not overlooked, you're not on the periphery, you're not um, 
unacknowledged by him. And I think understanding that in our day and age, especially as a younger person, is so incredibly um, important and powerful because I think everything in our culture tells us if you don't achieve, if you don't have the right number of followers, if you're not making the right amount of money or dating the right person or the right weight, the three little numbers on the scale aren't exactly perfect, then you don't rate And I think the scripture stands in absolute antithesis to that. So that would be the first thing, that God is faithful and that he is the God who sees. And then in regards to the desert experience, I would just think about and ask people to remember um, what it says in Hosea. It says, therefore, I will now allure her into the desert that I might speak tenderly to her. And uh, that word tenderly in its original language has an ancient form of the word heart. And so the way I think about it is this, God's alluring us, actually asking us to follow him sometimes into difficult seasons because he wants to speak to our hearts. It's not about behavior modification. It's about getting to the root of the matter, which are the things that reside in our hearts. And if we will but surrender ourselves to the season, if we'll wave the white flag of surrender over the season, we'll find that deep heart, open heart surgery being done. And then we come up out of it with a new heart as he, as he promises in the scripture he'll do. So those are two things that just leap to mind generally and then about the desert season specifically. Thank you so much, Alison, for your time today. I really do appreciate speaking with you and finding out so much more about your journey and how we can all pursue rest and how we can all embrace seasons where it might seem a little bit dry, but in fact, God is with us and it is purposeful. The new book, Thirsty for More, is available now from Baker Publishing Group and wherever good books are sold. Before I let you go, Alison, let me ask, what's next for you? We've been talking about your new book right at the start of a new year. So what else are you hoping for in 2019? Oh, I love that question. You know, I have spent the the first month almost of this year resting, <laughs> which we nice. spent so much <laughs> of our time talking about because I feel like I've run so hard that I haven't really had a, a, a I haven't created a space for God to speak, you know, um, and to instruct as much as I want to. So I've really been resting and I am uh, as open-handed as I think I've ever been. I have, you know, I'm always speaking and I'm g- going out on the road, but as far as what's next in terms of projects, I'm I'm just deeply, deeply open-handed. We have some my my screenwriting partner and myself has some things in the works, but that that always feels like a different track for me. Personally, I am open-handed and saying, Lord, your word says the boundary lines for me fall in pleasant places, and you know the territory that I'm supposed to stand in. So I am open-handed. Here's to being open-handed this year. I like that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you, Deanna. My thanks to Alison Allen for speaking with me today. Her new book, Thirsty for More, is available now from Revel and wherever good books are sold. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for more in Hide of Heart. Hide of Heart.